Hey, entrepreneurs, it's Steph here. Do you want to experience what it's like to be part of our Entrepreneurial League community of founders? Now is your chance. New member open enrollment begins on June 10th, and so does our Experience Week. I really want you to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to be part of the most supportive community that will be here to support you at all stages of your business journey during our Experience Week. This will be a five-day virtual event series, and it starts on Monday, June 10th through Friday, June 14th. You're going to get access to live networking and learning events, business growth strategies, as well as office hours with Kim Perel, who is a CEO and serial entrepreneurista, as well as a prominent angel investor. You will also get access to a session on how to win grants with Kat Weaver and Katie Dunn, founders of Power to Pitch. Plus, our mentor, Carrie Kirpin, will be teaching a session all about how to build a profitable business that can sell for more money. And of course, I'll be hosting two info and networking sessions where you can really get an inside look at all of the exclusive benefits and resources that are offered only inside of our Entrepreneurs League community. Plus, you'll have the chance to meet and build relationships with current members. You can register today for Experience Week over at entrepreneurs.com forward slash experience week. That's entrepreneurs.com forward slash experience week to join us for a week of free virtual events. I cannot wait to meet you and be part of your business journey. Don't just wait for the investor to be like, that was great, or I'm passing. So do as much as you can to just move the ball forward. And again, just think of the mindset of it's in your control. It's not on them to move it forward. Sarah Adler brings a blend of venture and operator experience to the Wave Capital team as general partner. Following an early stint in VC as part of Menlo Ventures, she dove into the startup world, joining Facebook as an early member of their corporate development team. Over six years, she built the corporate development teams at Dropbox and Airbnb and led over 30 acquisitions. Now, this mama pranista is focused on her business, Wave Capital, and funding founder-led companies. Coming up, Sarah shares her experience working in corporate development and how she knew she wanted to start her own business. How Sarah knew her Wave Capital co-founder would be the right partner. Sarah shares why she is attracted to founder-led companies and Sarah shares advice for navigating a difficult job market. And finally, Sarah shares Wave's current portfolio and what she looks for when deciding to invest. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Sarah, we are so thrilled to have this conversation with you today. I know that you have such an incredible background and so many learning lessons to share from your experience first working in the startup and corporate world and now launching your own fund. I would love to know, you know, did you always know that you ultimately wanted to be a founder? 
actually, I was pretty adamant for most of my career that I would never start something. So it was a pretty big segue to myself that I ended up starting a venture firm. I think that actually dates back to my dad was someone who was kind of, he was a doctor, but he loved inventing things. And I just always thought as like this side project and like a distraction. And so I clearly went the corporate route, like I joke that I'm like a logo chaser for most of my career, but it wasn't until I kind of shed my expectations for what the right route was for me to take that I realized like matching my goals and value systems with what the work itself could be versus just looking at, you know, the the right track, quote unquote, to be on that I was much more open-minded to starting something. And um, it never occurred to me to start a firm versus a company. I kind of always thought to be a founder meant you started a company because those were the founders who I mostly interacted with. And kind of opening my mind to starting a venture firm was kind of this perfect storm of exactly what I was looking for once I let myself kind of be open-minded to it. Walk us through your path and how you got to be where you are today. I am a Bay Area native and I ended up going to college here, have never left for much of my life. And I left college and thought I would do investment banking. I did investment banking, but it was, I I graduated during the financial crisis. And so I was supposed to go to New York. I had, you know, like big plans. That was what you did and then got rerouted to San Francisco. And so I think that kind of set a course for really my tech journey. I candidly did not love investment banking. I lasted a year. I left as soon as I could. But from there, went into venture capital. I kind of figured that I wanted to work in a company, but I didn't really have the tools or skill set to understand which company was a good company to join. And so I figured venture capital was a good way for me to obviously earn a living, but also to kind of learn how to assess businesses. And so I did I did that for a couple of years at a firm called Menlo Ventures out here, obviously in Menlo Park, as the name might suggest. And um, after that, it was always with the goal in mind of, of going into a company. And so the question then was, you know, what type of role? There's obviously so many different paths you can take. Um, but I realized that I really loved working with founders. And so I, I kind of narrowed that into realizing that corporate development is the only world in which you can still work with founders within a company. And so at that point, Facebook was my absolute dream job. I was such a big fan of the product. I feel like I grew up in the Facebook generation during my college era. and It also fit the mold of a small team where I could really be hands-on. And so I still so remember the the day I got my offer there. It was like a dream come true. And I was the second person on their corporate development team. So I was really thrown into the deep end. Having had zero experience doing mergers and acquisitions, I was pretty quickly just thrown in and said, go, you can figure it out. Like you've got a safety net here, but it's it's your time to lead deals, which in hindsight is incredible that they gave me that chance because I really didn't know much. This was 2011. So it was before they'd gone public and in the heyday of their acquire era. But during my time there, we, we acquired Instagram, which was incredibly fun and just a thrill to be a part of. And it was just a, a really condensed learning experience. I made some amazing friends, such great colleagues. And fast forward to kind of my the end of my journey there, I ended up getting recruited by Dropbox to come in and play a similar role for their team. And so I joined there in 2013 and ended up leading the their M&A efforts for two years. And we were incredibly acquisitive. Again, it was one of those jump into the deep end. I had a little bit underneath me having been at Facebook, but from going from being on a team to leading a team was a pretty dramatic jump at that point in my career. And I ended up, I think, leading 
and closing 16 acquisitions in two years, which in, in M&A land is pretty crazy. So again, just a real quick deep dive in, in kind of learning the ropes. And then from there, I got recruited to Airbnb, which is where I was most recently. And that was an amazing opportunity. I was always a fan of the product. I was a, a super host for many years. And it was also a chance for me to build something from scratch. They hadn't built their corporate development function out yet. And so went there and I had this moment of, I've had this dream career of, of amazing companies Working hard, don't get me wrong, but I really felt lucky and privileged to work in such different industries and different with different founders and teams. And I was working on this one acquisition at the time that was probably the, my favorite type of acquisition. It was like a really meaty technology deal. It was very high profile. I was interacting with our Airbnb board, with my CEO, Brian Chesky, a lot. And I just was kind of bored. Like, I, I think I just played out, you know, as much as I could have learned. And I was clearly uh, not someone who was willing to just coast and and let things slide. I really wanted to keep learning. And so I surprised myself by actually re-exploring venture as an option. And like I mentioned earlier, I I did not explore the idea at first of, of starting something that was absolutely not in the cards. I thought I would join a big firm. I'd been at one before. But the more I talked to firms and got to know them, the more I realized that it just wasn't the right fit for me. Um, and so we can go into that more later, but it ended up being the perfect path for me to start Wave with, with my partner, Riley, who I met at Airbnb. And what happened or was there a conversation, a specific conversation that led to you starting Wave? How did that come to be? Riley was courting me. So I was very upfront. I, it kind of felt like a dating process where I was very clear that I was in conversation with these other bigger firms. That was likely the path I was going to take. I didn't want him to get disappointed when I, you know, took an offer at some other firm. And he was like, okay, but, you know, patiently waiting on the sides and, and continuing, you know, to explore what it would look like for us to build this firm. And I ended up getting a few different offers to join some venture firms. And it was actually in that process that it really became clear to me that it just wasn't the culture that I wanted to join. I think for me, and I've having been at a venture firm before, granted at a, a more junior capacity, I knew enough to know that being part of a firm was just very different than starting your own small thing. And I was not really interested in the internal dynamics that are required to get deals done at a venture firm. I was much more interested in kind of starting fresh and and really building something from scratch. And again, part of this was like this shedding of my preconceived notions of my own ego and what it meant to join something and something established that I could kind of put my name against versus setting out on my own. And it took me a little while to get past that kind of imposter syndrome of, in fact, I didn't tell friends for a while that I'd chosen this path. I was kind of embarrassed about it, which now is, I don't know why it's kind of silly, but uh, it took me a while to just get comfortable that, you know, I was going on my own and forging this new, new direction. How did you decide that you and your partner would be the right fit to partner together? Did you have opposite skill sets? Was it based on your initial working relationship at Airbnb? How did you know it was the right fit? He and I were kind of besties at work. So we got along incredibly well. And, and actually, I was sat next to him on my first day. And we kind of always, you know, in high growth environments, you're always like moving desks every two weeks. And we always made sure that we would stay next to each other because we, we really enjoyed each other's company. We also were the only two non-engineers reporting to the effective CTO of Airbnb. At the time, Airbnb didn't have a CFO, which is normally where CorpDev would report into. 
And so we were kind of like the two odd men out and just got along really well and worked really well together. So that was kind of the baseline. But on top of that, yeah, our skills are quite complementary. So his background was he was one of the first 10 employees at Airbnb and built out the data function. So data science, data engineering, stuff like that. Much more technical than I am. But that that was kind of the gravy on top. I think the nicer part was that our value system was so aligned. And I think it's actually something that I would, to segue into kind of founder advice, I think it's really often more focused on the skill set side to just look at, okay, on paper, do we complement each other? And I think often it's under emphasize that it's important also to round each other out, both in terms of your personalities and how you kind of look at diversifying the team from that perspective, but that your value systems are really fundamentally aligned because it's it's hard. Starting anything, I think, just really tests a relationship. And especially after, you know, 2020 and all the, for us, for Riley and I, we both have had small kids throughout this. And it's just been, you know, there's a lot that can test the, the stress levels of a partnership. And I think if you don't have kind of all of the aspects of a relationship, relationships, skill sets, personality differences and values kind of understood going in, um, it'll be tested and then you'll see kind of later on. So I would say that we we had good high hopes that it would work and now we feel very battle tested, thankfully. You said something really interesting earlier that you came to the realization early in your career that you prefer to work for founder-led companies. Can you share how you came to that realization and what the differences are between founder-led companies and non-founder-led companies? Yeah, I was really drawn to, I guess, first and foremost, mission-oriented companies. But as I got to know what that meant, I think to me, it was very much synonymous with founders being at the top and and kind of helping be the guiding light. And it's interesting because I I worked for three very different founders. I mean, Mark, Drew, and Brian are very different personalities and and also have very different backgrounds themselves. But you know, I think at the core, the passion and resolve that they brought just leads you through the ups and the downs. I mean, I was fortunate to be part of hyper growth eras and which comes with its own challenges and exhaustion, but there's still challenges that come and roadblocks and moments where the team feels like, shoot, are we doing the right thing? Are we in the right direction? We've got all these naysayers. At every point in those three companies, there were plenty of bad press cycles where it was, you know, people just kind of coming after you and and you have to dig deep and understand as a, as an employee base, you know, why are we here? And I think if if you have a really strong founder at the top, that just helps reiterate the mission much more, at least from what I saw. That doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of successful companies where there have been hired CEOs that come in or or hired management teams. But from my perspective, I think it just speaks back to kind of the style of work and and both, you know, how I like being an employee, but now how I like working with founders. I think I just really get a lot of energy from that passion from founders. Cordy and I also worked in the corporate world before we started our first business, Social Fly. And I feel like we took a lot of our learning lessons from our corporate careers, the things that worked really well, we wanted to bring to our agency business, the things that didn't work well in the corporate world, we wanted to leave behind. And we were very intentional about that when we started our business. Have you been able to take some of the learning lessons or a lot of learning lessons from each company to not only apply to your business, but also now are you able to share those learning lessons with the founders that that you've invested in? Absolutely. I mean, it was part of why I felt like I had to leave venture and work at a company. I felt like me giving advice as like an early 20-something 
with zero work experience in a company was just fraudulent. I just couldn't do it. And I understand that that you can learn without doing, but I'm very much a learn by doing person. And so I think for me, most of the skill sets that I learned from operating, I now am able to leverage by helping our companies. They're less transferable probably on a day-to-day basis with running the firm. I mean, you know, the the ins and outs and nuance of venture capital are pretty niche. And I didn't quite pick on that from my operating career. But certainly, I think I didn't even appreciate at the time just being in a hyper growth environment. It doesn't really matter what function you are. If you are working cross-functionally, you're just absorbing so much. Like, I don't think people appreciate until they leave how much knowledge they have beyond just their core function, just by being in those amazing environments, because they're just, hyper growth is just such a, a unique beast. And so I, I think looking back and being able to step away and having been part of it for sure is something that I am happy to now bring to other companies. Obviously, there's the clear example of mergers and acquisitions. So anytime our companies you know, go through that or, or are going to start acquiring their own companies, that's a clear example of where I can add value or, or BD generally. And that's super fun because it allows me to feel like I, I didn't waste all that learning energy for nothing. But more than that, it's just kind of like the general hiring and org design and, you know, just all the stuff that's general company building versus specific to the work that I was doing. Can you share some of the good and bad in terms of cultures that you experienced and some of your corporate experiences and and what advice you would share with founders based on those learnings and how they should set up their culture? Absolutely. And it's actually something, having been an employee at all three companies and not a founder, I think I am very empathetic to the employee journey. And it's something that I feel helped me decide that I wanted to be an investor and a board member because I wanted to make sure that employees have a voice in board discussions and not just the investors and the people who are around the table, the founders, namely, because I think often they're left out of these discussions. But yeah, I mean, being at those companies, the good and the bad of working for very passionate, mission-oriented founders is they've are so bought into what they're building that, you know, it's in some ways feels like life or death. So, you know, mistakes that get made are taken incredibly seriously because I think they really understand this isn't just a job for them. This is everything that they've poured into their everything. And so I think the tough moments of that were, especially as I was young and learning, I had to take pretty harsh feedback and got had to learn how to just accept it and understand that it wasn't a personal flaw. It was much more about just being part of this bigger mission. But sometimes it it was challenging. And I think the other aspect of hypergrowth that is just exhausting is there's reorgs constantly. And so you're, the priorities are changing and the your boss is changing. I mean, I've had so many bosses over my years within each of those companies. And so you just had to make sure that you were up for the game of, okay, well, we're going to have to get this person up to speed and I'm going to have to now convince this new person that I'm amazing and, and just kind of play the the game of it's all for this greater good. And it's it's not just about me, it's about the company's mission overall. So yeah, there's, a, there's some good and bad that come with hypergrowth. Hi, entrepreneurs. You know, I am always here to provide you with as much value as possible. So I wanted to be sure that you have access to the Entrepreneurista Agenda, our weekly newsletter where we share the latest business news, success stories, grant opportunities, as well as all of our favorite resources and special offers for founders just like you. You can sign up to join our weekly newsletter and join over 50,000 other entrepreneurs over at 
entreprenisa.com forward slash newsletter. That's entreprenisa.com slash newsletter to subscribe to the Entreprenista agenda. Sarah, I also graduated during a really tough job market. I graduated in 2009. And because of that, it led me down a different path. I took a job that I didn't necessarily think that I would take right after college, but I'm very grateful for all of the experiences that I've had since college. So do you have any advice for college students or really anyone navigating the job market right now? Yeah, I was so fortunate to still be able to have the job that I thought I had when graduating. But I think in hindsight, I had a very strict view of what I needed to do and what I needed to accomplish that it took me a lot of time to kind of shed. And so I think in a market where you don't have that luxury, it forces you to shed those preconceived notions earlier. And so I think and I would also caveat that the world has changed so dramatically on the, from a job market perspective, the creator economy, like there's actually the on-demand economy, like there are so many things that just didn't exist when I was graduating, or it sounds like maybe when you were graduating, Courtney. And so I think understanding kind of the fundamentals of what you're trying to get out of your career, first and foremost, I think are critical and then create the path for yourself. The other thing I would just say is, in this type of environment, you're probably forced to understand that nobody's really looking out for you other than you. And, you know, I think learning that lesson early is only going to serve you better than having to wait for that reality to hit you later. It took me a while to really understand that the reins are in my hands and no one is going to help me through it. And that means that I can ask people for advice, but that's on me to solicit it. And I can ask for mentorship, but that's on me to find it. And I think that the earlier you can understand that and then figure out who your network is to draw from, that's just going to help you over time again and again and again. So I think that's like the silver lining I think of this environment is is you're kind of forced to grasp at these more mature realities that many of us had the luxury, I guess. But in hindsight, I wish I'd understood that sooner. So we're seeing a lot of scary headlines on the news and we're seeing what's happening in the stock market. What advice do you have for founders running a company right now or looking to raise money given the current market conditions? You know, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of discrepancy that I've seen and and I lived as an early employee through the 08 crisis and investment bank. I was at an investment bank during it. So I was in the midst of all these layoffs. So I have empathy from that perspective. And having then seen 2020 with COVID, obviously we saw how that then rebounded. But I've seen a few of these dips and moments of utter chaos. And in both those times, I've realized that the underrepresented founders that I've worked with and peers with or, you know, have invested in are the ones that are actually the most calm in these pressure-filled moments, largely because they've kind of been dealing with a lot their entire careers and lives. And so I think that, you know, for anyone who's listening who fits into that bucket, I'm sure that probably resonates where it just feels like another obstacle that's put in the way of them getting to what they want. And you know what? Great please bring it, you know? And I think that that's actually been a really encouraging thing for me to see is that mentality. Because I think the the obvious downside of all of this is that it's harder to raise money and it's going to, you need to reduce burn to extend your runway because you just don't know how long the recession is going to hit and who knows how your business is going to be impacted by the recession, et cetera. All those things are true. It just means you have to be more creative and you've got to be able to adapt. And I think that Again, the silver lining is for people who have constantly been having to prove more, work harder to get the same things. 
honestly, this is your moment to shine because everyone else that has had it a lot easier and whether it's because, you know, they were a white man or because they were from Silicon Valley, like they just had things handed to them. Well, like it's kind of evening the playing field in some ways. So I think that it's in a lot of ways, again, a silver lining and a benefit to kind of people that have had to struggle all along. (laughs) Sarah, what are you seeing in the VC world right now in terms of money being deployed? Are you finding that VCs are not willing to deploy money right now because of the potential recession? Or do you still see that there's money out there and that founders who are raising should still pound the pavement and and go get it? It's slower. I think, you know, obviously at the later stages, it's like, almost a complete halt. I had a friend who I had dinner with last night who said that they were raising their Series B. And this was a company that's backed by tier one VCs from their seed to Series A, have great metrics. They had 60 meetings with venture firms and got one term sheet. And it was at a much lower valuation than they would have thought. And that's, again, as blue chip of an opportunity as you can hope for. And so I think that does speak to the later stages of the market. I think that's a pretty accurate depiction. and. Even at the earliest stages at Seed, it's interesting. I, you know, we just launched our second fund. We were absolutely in business, but there are less opportunities that we're seeing. And I think it's largely because founders are just trying to put their heads down. And until there's kind of this price discovery moment where people know kind of what, what does a seed look like right now? Is it $2 million? Is it $4 million? Should I be looking for 15% dilution or is it 25% now? Until we have more data points, I think it's just hard for either side to feel willing to kind of put a stake in the ground and commit. I think though, especially at the seed stage coming off of Labor Day, we're going to see kind of people coming back because there's a lot of money. There are a lot of funds, but there's also the reality that VCs have been living in this frenetic frenzy for the last two years of crazy term sheet timelines and lack of diligence and all that. Again, a lot of that was not from, that's not to say that it's been easy to fundraise for most people. I know how hard it is for founders who don't look a certain way, but for VCs, a lot of people are taking the summer and are like, finally, I can take a breath. I can take a break. Like this market is crazy. Let's have it sort itself out and then let's come back. And, you know, whether or not they're saying that explicitly, I think that is happening. Sarah, what is your thesis for Wave Capital? So we focus on marketplaces. We looked around the landscape when we set out eventually when Riley convinced me that I should actually do this and realized that there weren't really that many people or investors or firms rather that were focused specifically on marketplace business models at the seed stage. And coming from Airbnb, which I think is one of the best examples of one, we felt like we had some value that we could bring to the table. And when we asked ourselves, you know, why is that, I think the honest answer was, well, because marketplaces are really hard. (laughs) And we thought that that's no reason not to invest in them because we actually felt like we had, you know, pretty good insight into what could make good ones. So that's the specific focus of the firm in terms of thesis. And then I think the only other difference that is worth calling out is how we invest. So most seed firms make many investments, you know, 10 plus per year and write, you know, lead or follow on checks kind of, and I can get into more detail if that's helpful. We only make four investments a year. We only lead our investments. And it means that we, you know, have to say no to a lot of entrepreneurs, but it also means that we 
are very hands-on with the companies we do partner with. That's actually largely driven by the model that Riley saw Sequoia play or the role that Riley saw Sequoia play after they made their seed investment in Airbnb. I think it was a $600,000 check at the time, which gives you a sense for how much the market has shifted and how hands-on they were. They didn't just view it as a throwaway investment. They viewed it as a, we are a lead investor and we're going to help the company. And so we we felt like we wanted to bring that kind of DNA along with the marketplace focus. Can you share some of the companies in your portfolio? Yeah. So the fun part of being business model focused is we are completely sector agnostic. So I will say we have a few companies in our portfolio that are from our Airbnb network and not marketplace oriented. And we give ourselves that flexibility and I can talk about some of those. But from a marketplace perspective, we have companies that on one end of the spectrum, there's a business called Copper, and it's a a platform to connect authors with book readers. So one kind of more consumer-oriented marketplace. We just had Fran Hauser on the podcast, and she shared that she's an investor. Yeah, she's a board member. Yes. Mm -hmm. Fran's lovely. And on the other end of the spectrum is a company called Outlast, which is a scrap metal recycling marketplace completely different (laughs) ecosystem, but actually the dynamics are not that dissimilar. And so it's really fun for us to be able to add value and then learn and really, really rely on the, on the founders to kind of get us up to speed on the different markets. But it's, uh, it keeps us, yeah, (laughs) on our toes. (laughs) A lot of context switching from scrap metal to authors. You're so selective in what you invest in. What do you look for? What makes you say yes? What's an immediate no for you? We're definitely founder-led. You know, I think that was probably the biggest takeaway that I had from my time at Airbnb, Dropbox, and Facebook is when we led acquisitions, the biggest predictor of success of that integration was how strong the founding teams were. And that ranges from the three-person aqua hire to Instagram. And so I think there are certain investors that are very much focused on different markets and they have theses on kind of what areas they want to invest in. We definitely skew on the more founder-led approach. Like I, for example, the scrap metal company Outlast would have never thought of scrap metal. It was not on my radar. So that's kind of the first lens. And then the second lens is more around the marketplace dynamics. So we'd spend a lot of time kind of understanding what makes a good marketplace in this specific industry, kind of poking holes in different areas that we've seen can work or not work as well. And then thirdly, on the market itself. But again, we do lean heavily on the founders who we think are the experts on the market to kind of help get us up to speed. So speaking of founders, we have lots of Entrepreneista founders in our Entrepreneista League community, and many of them are currently either raising money or in the process of raising money. And I know firsthand from raising for our market how hard and extensive the process is. And Sarah, you know from both sides, from raising your fund and also just seeing founders raising and pitching, how hard that process can be. So I would love if you could help make it even a tiny bit easier and share some tips and advice advice for the best ways to reach out to VCs, how to stand out, what makes a really great pitch, any advice or feedback you can share would be amazing. Yeah, I totally have empathy. It took us a year to raise our first fund, probably almost a year to raise our second fund. And everyone said it would be easier and it didn't feel easier. So I understand how hard it can be. I think first and foremost, it's like running a process and viewing as viewing it as running a process. I think ideally it's not this kind of like drip process of like, well, I'm just collecting checks on my safe note and over time we'll get there. Ideally it is 
a a month long focused or maybe more than a month in this market, but a, a focused point of time that you are driving everyone toward. And what that starts with is, you know, having your pipeline of who you're trying to reach out to, doing your homework on who the right firms actually are, who the right people in those firms actually are. Ideally, you're getting introductions either via other VCs, other angels, people that are willing to vouch for you and are definitely not people who have passed on you. That is never a good idea. The first question I get, I ask if, if a VC has introduced me to a company is like, oh, are, are you looking at this too? Are you moving forward? If they say no, we're passing, immediate red flag for me. Or other founders who a referral from a founder in my network is a huge vote of confidence for me. So after you've kind of got your qualified leads and got your outreach and you're in front of these founders, I'd say aspects of the pitch to focus on. I mean, there's so many good examples out there, so I don't want to like be too redundant, but it's, you know, really distilling and being as succinct as possible on hitting the market, hitting the why now, hitting what makes you different, getting your kind of, in terms of what makes you different, your personal narrative of, of like why you are uniquely capable of making this opportunity come to life. And then, you know, where you're currently at, have you built anything yet? Kind of what traction is there to say? And then where are you headed? I'd say if you, if you nail all those, like that's at least a great place to start start. And I'd, I'd be as streamlined as possible so that it's not a 30 plus page deck, but ideally more like 10 to 15 slides total. And then qualify in the conversation as much as you can without being too aggressive. I think that's where it's a little bit challenging and and for men and women. I've certainly had conversations with founders where it felt like they weren't actually listening to the conversation. They were just trying to get me off the call so they can decide whether or not it was worth their time and my time to move forward. There's a relationship component to this. I think for most people, even if they write 50 checks in a year, there's still a relationship that you're trying to build. And so I think there is that nuance of really trying to connect with the person that you're talking to, but also understand, is this actually likely? So I wouldn't put someone too much on the spot of, well, are you interested? Because, <laughs> you know, very rarely am I like, absolutely, I need to think about it a bit. But try and, and ask questions that can lead to your own conclusion versus outright ask them, are they interested? And then from there, make sure that you are driving the process forward. It's not just like, okay, well, they said they'd get back to me. It's the balls in your court. Like again, kind of back to that, like take the career by the reins, like take the process by the reins. It's on you to move it forward. So don't wait for someone to get back to you. You've got a process, you've got a timeline. You can get back to someone and say like, well, it was really great to connect. As a next step, I'm letting other people know that we're going to do a deep dive into our model. Or as a next step, we're doing this next. Let me know if, if I can you know, schedule time with you. Don't just wait for the investor to be like, that was great, or I'm passing. So do as much as you can to just move the ball forward. And again, just think of the mindset of it's in your control. It's not on them to move it forward. So I think that's probably the high level. That is such great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Hey, entrepreneurs, Stephanie here. Dressing up while working from home has truly been a challenge, but guess what? I found a solution founded by a fellow entrepreneurista. It's Armoire. You can rent stylish clothes weekly or monthly right from the app. You'll spend less time shopping and you can get up to 50% off of your first month, plus two bonus items. Just use the code entrepreneurista at checkout or visit armoire.style forward slash entrepreneurista to claim your offer. Look and feel your best with Armoire. I know I do. That's armoire.style forward slash entrepreneurista. 
All right, Sarah, this is a fun segment we like to do. We're going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? The first word or words that come to your mind. All right. Describe yourself in three words. Persistent. Ambitious. Oh, man, I don't know the third. (laughs) (laughs) I actually was going to say like kind of relaxed, which doesn't really go with those other two. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I love that. What are you currently reading? I've actually really, not surprising, I invested in an author and book app that I enjoy reading a lot. There's kind of two books that I would say. One is um, Apples Never Fall. It's by the author who wrote the Big Little Lies book which if anyone watched that on HBO, big fan. So that was really good. And then there was another book about like the, vent- <laughs> this is super geeky, but the history of venture capital. And I, I can't remember the name of it, but all VCs were, were reading it recently and it was phenomenal for any, oh, the power laws, the name of it, for anyone who geeks out on venture history. It was awesome, but very different from like a summer read. <laughs> I'm writing that one down. We'll, we'll link out to it below too in the show notes. What is your favorite app on your phone that you can't live without? Right now, it's the Kindle app, reading a ton on my phone. That's actually, oh my gosh, I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So during bedtimes, like if if I have to just zone out, I'm just, I'm reading a book, first, which makes me feel better than just scrolling aimlessly on social media too much, so. Do you prefer sweet or salty? Sweet. I have such a sweet tooth. Me too. What is your favorite business tool that has helped transform your business or maybe other businesses that you've worked at? I would say probably Airtable most recently, maybe a a hack or not a hack, an approach more than anything is just like, I'm an inbox zero person. And so uh, it's not like a tool so much as a lifestyle. (laughs) If my inbox gets beyond 10, I kind of can't handle it. So I'm always on top of it. That's going to be a good segue in just a minute to talk about your your tips on that. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, what is your superpower? I think I'm pretty good at being empathetic and connecting with people. And I think that that has helped me with negotiating. I think it helped me with starting something with a partner and kind of like understanding what he's going through and now working with founders. I had another question for you, Sarah, to go back to our regular questions, but I actually want to ask you about Inbox Zero. What are your tips? What tools, what tips? Like, how do you manage your inbox to get to Inbox Zero every day? Okay. In reality, I probably get to inbox three every day. So I've always got like a couple and I actually tried superhuman and I realized it's just like that. That's not what I need. I don't need to pay for it. I already, I know that the tools because anyway, so I think if you need help, maybe try superhuman. For me, I just view it as my to-do list. And so if I want to get something done later, I'll boomerang it back or snooze it until later. I actually like will write emails to myself as like a to-do thing just so that it it literally is my to-do list. And so I'm the type of person that like I can't procrastinate. So I guess that's just kind of (laughs) ingrained in me. And so once you kind of get in the habit of just getting through things and and being okay with archiving stuff that is just, you're never going to read that blog post. You're never going to, you know, you're never going to get there. It's kind of refreshing and it's like checking things off. And and then once you start like probably a week or two of doing it, I think you'd then get in the habit and it actually is like very calming. (laughs) (laughs) or not call me when you have more than 10, like can't handle it. Outside of making sure that your inbox is as close to zero as possible, how else do you like to unwind at the end of the day? Well, until somewhat recently, I was a big Pelotoner and uh, was getting very into working out, but I injured my knee. So I'm, I'm still on the road to recovery there. But 
I mean, I think it's actually reading has been that the main outlet for me uh, in my time of immobility. I have, like I said, two young kids, love them, spend time with them. And that's a perk of working from home hybrid life. But I wouldn't exactly call that the relaxing part of my day. So reading and kind of unwinding or like my husband and I like, you know, have shows that we'll watch together after bedtime for the kids and, and just kind of having like zone out oftentimes like absolutely nothing to do with work and absolutely just for fun, I think is is critical. How have you found it? You know, you've been a mom now for six years, but adapting to, you know, working, also being a parent, any other tips and tricks you could share for all of our working mamas and mama pernista, entrepreneurs who have little ones? Yeah, I think that, and I will say it was different to be a mom when I was operating than it is to be a mom as a VC. I think the beauty of starting my own thing and being in venture, at least, is it's incredibly flexible. And so being able to set my own schedule was something that I was drawn to and actually something that makes me kind of frustrated that there aren't more moms and women in venture because I think it's an incredibly flexible career. But it doesn't mean I don't still have guilt and I don't still get guilt tripped by my kids. I think I've just it's taken me a while, but come to realize that I am absolutely a better mom because I work. I wouldn't be as patient if I didn't. And that I was very pregnant with my my son when I was fundraising for Wave at first. And a lot of what motivated me to keep going was knowing that like I could go back as they got older and tell them the story of like, I was out there and I was like traveling and meeting LPs and like trying to get this done and hustle. And I want that to be a motivational and inspirational thing for them. And not just a, ugh, mommy, like, why were you gone all the time? And and it's already actually started to work with my six-year-old. She's already, <laughs> she's very entrepreneurial. And she, if you ask her what I do, she can basically explain that I give money to founders and in exchange, I get to work with them. And anyway, so I, I think it's now gratifying as they get older, as they can understand and see it more. But that was a guiding light for me is knowing that first and foremost, it's not my personality to be a stay-at-home mom. And I would absolutely lose my mind. And that would not make me a good mom. And I want to be motivating for them and a good role model for both my daughter and my son for what it means to be ambitious. Is there anything that our audience would be surprised to learn about you? I was so shy as a kid, which I think, and I'm now definitely not shy, but I think you can and maybe this is more for people looking at their either themselves or their children and like worrying that if you are one type of way as a younger person, you'll just be stuck like that forever. And I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I still have major imposter syndrome. So I think that just never quite goes away. <laughs> That's so interesting. But but thank you for sharing that because I'm sure it's so relatable to so many of us. And I remember when Courtney and I were first starting Social Fly, like we were positioning ourselves as social media experts. And back then, like no one wasn't really an expert in social media. It was like anyone who was like a power user could be an expert in social media. And it's like, you just have to put yourself out there and start doing it and talking about it and taking action. And then it becomes, you know, second nature and you get more comfortable. And, you know, I see this a lot with our entrepreneurial League members who are just starting their businesses and and feeling like, like what you said, you, you didn't want to tell people that you were first starting this fund. And it's like, tell everyone, talk about it. That's how we're all going to I'll find out about everyone's businesses and, and grow together. So I'm glad you shared that. And, and it's super relatable, Sarah. Yeah, I'm overcoming parts of it for sure. But it wasn't probably even until the last year that I finally fully been able to like embrace. Actually, I do know a lot and I've learned a lot uh, about how to 
run a firm and how to raise venture funds. And I think I used to look up to people at bigger firms and thought like, oh, I'm nothing compared to them. And then I just realized we're playing different games. And so they actually wouldn't know how to do this. And that's okay. And it's not a competition. And yeah, so I, I, I think it's easy to look from the outside in and make assumptions. But I think we're all dealing with similar issues, probably. Absolutely. Well, last question for you, Sarah. What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? I think it means taking risks and maybe pushing yourself a little bit outside of your comfort zone, but hopefully knowing that you've got a community to support you. Absolutely. Sarah, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing so much valuable information with our incredible Entreprenista community. It's been so amazing to just hear your whole journey and really how one thing was able to lead to the next and help with the the next chapter. And we're so excited to continue to follow all that you do with Wave Capital. So keep us posted on all the founders you're working with so we can be sure to, to share their stories as well. Where can everyone find you and follow you and for our founders who could be a great fit to reach out to you? I'm Sarah T. Adler on Twitter and Instagram. And we are wave.capital is our website. And actually, one final thought I just wanted to leave everyone with, because I I would have shared this earlier had I thought through it, is I think in hindsight, it's so easy to kind of create this narrative of what your career looks like, and it all fits together, and it all leads from one to the next. But in any given moment, it never felt obvious. And I think even for me, having gone from pretty amazing companies, it always felt terrifying to leave what I was doing to go to the next thing. I had my family being like, you're crazy. Why would you leave Facebook? Why would you then leave Dropbox? And and so I think it's easy to look from the outside in at most people who are later in their career and maybe just think that it was all planned for them or they they were really focused on what it was going to be. But again, in, especially in a time like this, in this market, just know that most people are figuring it out as they go and they have instincts and trust your gut. And I think that's like the most important lesson that I would take away. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks for having me. Thank you again for being here, Sarah. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Hey, Entrepreneurs, it's Steph here. Do you want to experience what it's like to be part of our Entreprenista League community of founders? Now is your chance. New member open enrollment begins on June 10th, and so does our experience week. I really want you to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to be part of the most supportive community that will be here to support you at all stages of your business journey during our experience week. This will be a five-day virtual event series, and it starts on Monday, June 10th through Friday, June 14th. You're going to get access to live networking and learning events, business growth strategies, as well as office hours with Kim Corral, who is a CEO and serial entrepreneurista, as well as a prominent angel investor. 
You will also get access to a session on how to win grants with Kat Weaver and Katie Dunn, founders of Power to Pitch. Plus, our mentor, Carrie Kirpin, will be teaching a session all about how to build a profitable business that can sell for more money. And of course, I'll be hosting two info and networking sessions where you can really get an inside look at all of the exclusive benefits and resources that are offered only inside of our Entrepreneurial League community. Plus, you'll have the chance to meet and build relationships with current members. You can register today for Experience Week over at entrepreneurista.com forward slash experience week. That's entrepreneurista.com forward slash experience week to join us for a week of free virtual events. I cannot wait to meet you and be part of your business journey.